In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin, but these days at home in Kildare due to the coronavirus. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. And what a week it's been. After three years of negotiations on the Irish border, thousands of meetings, countless crises, the resignation of one Prime Minister and finally, finally a breakthrough treaty, Boris Johnson has decided at the last minute that he doesn't actually like the oven-ready deal he signed up to last October and which delivered him a landslide election victory. In one of the most shocking developments in a journey already strewn with tumultuous political dramas, Downing Street announced it would overwrite parts of the protocol on Northern Ireland, admitting it was breaking international law in the process. Now we'll remind listeners what the protocol does, what bits the UK doesn't like, and we'll try and figure out just what exactly Boris Johnson hopes to achieve. But first, Tony and Sean, you can both pitch in on this. From memory, the withdrawal agreement is substantially the same as the withdrawal agreement that was concluded by Theresa May with the European Union. Boris Johnson particularly didn't like the parts about Ireland and Northern Ireland. So he came up with a wheeze in the world himself and Leo Varadkar in order to get over his objections to this and he signed up to it. This was his design in collaboration with Leo Varadkar which was then run back by the European Union and now he says he didn't foresee the consequences of the changes he helped to design. Am I missing something? Nope, that's no. it. Well actually what was agreed last October was different from Theresa May's deal, uh, but it was similar to the original European Commission proposal back in February 2018, which did foresee a customs border in the Irish Sea and a regulatory border. Theresa May didn't like that. No British Prime Minister would ever sign up to it. So she concocted a new kind of backstop that would see all of the UK, including Northern Ireland, in a customs union with the EU if, and it was an insurance policy, if the free trade agreement wasn't done on time or if it didn't provide the conditions for no hard border. And that was then, of course, rejected three times by the House of Commons, Boris Johnson included, and uh, all the Brexiteers, because it kept the UK too close to the EU and it didn't give the UK a kind of a, a, an exit that they could control. Then came Boris Johnson after Theresa May was consigned to history and he met Leo Varadkar in the world, as you said. But by that stage, a lot of what was in the treaty was still there in terms of the protocol. Boris Johnson, remember, had tried to push the border back to the land border, the customs border, using technology and other wizardry to sweeten the, the pill. The EU said, not a chance, you're not having that. 
And then after that meeting in the world with uh, Leo Varadkar, Boris Johnson effectively accepted the customs border and the regulatory border on the Irish Sea. In return, he got a consent clause. So in other words, the Northern Ireland Assembly could give its view on how this new arrangement was working every four years or so. And that's basically it. There was very little changed in the end. And everything that came out of the withdrawal agreement last year in the protocol, because the protocol is all that was changed in the withdrawal agreement. Everything that was in there was pretty much in the mix from the very beginning. And countless UK civil servants were back and forth to Brussels and they knew exactly what they were signing up to. And they knew exactly the implications for trade on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. They knew exactly what regulatory checks would be required for animal products, animal derived products, food products, live animals. They knew exactly what would happen with VAT, there'd be a twin VAT system in Northern Ireland. All of this was known and all of this was clear. And then this week, Sunday night, Financial Times drops the bombshell. You can pick it up from there, Sean. Great story. Great scoop. I mean, they've had two great scoops this week on this Brexit story. But the one that uh, dropped on Sunday night was particularly explosive. And it was this idea that rather than implement the protocol, which, as you say, was a small, precise sub-document to the main withdrawal agreement, which was largely untouched between Theresa May and Boris Johnson's assumption of the prime ministership, the British government were going to pass domestic legislation that would allow them to disapply bits of the protocol that they didn't like. In other words, they were lining up to be in breach of international treaty law. Now, that sent frissons, not quite shockwaves, but certainly a lot of people saying, haha, what the what is going on here? Uh, and so they were all focused on the House of Commons on Tuesday. Uh, well, well, they they, the they initially didn't didn't admit that it was going to break international law. Did they? They said it was kind of polishing around the edges. It wasn't. It wasn't really until later that they just came out. No, they it. no they no they didn't they didn't admit it up front. But people were saying, "Hang on, the implications of what's going on here being suggested by this Financial Times article is that this is what they're preparing." Then there was initial denials. Then there was uh, initial confirmations of journalistic inquiries that a piece of legislation was coming along that might have that sort of effect. But then it wasn't until the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis, got up in the House of Commons. And eventually, it must be said, about 40 minutes into the questioning, but was asked pretty tightly worded question by one of the Conservative backbenchers, who's also the chair of the House of Commons Legal Affairs Committee, Sir Bob Neill, would it effectively breach international law? And the Secretary of State got up on his feet and said, yes, we are going to break international law, but only in these very specific and limited circumstances. That was it. That was enough. That was the one that sent shockwaves, not just through the House of Commons, not just through British politics, not just through European politics, but internationally as well. All right. Well, uh, you had a minister of the crown saying, yeah, we intend to break international law. We intend to act illegally. And interestingly, he was reading from a prepared script when he said that. Right. Yeah, that, so, and that's back a, that's to you, Tony. Then, how did that go down? What was the reaction in Europe? Well, the reaction was was disbelief. And I mean, just to just to cl- go back to a point Sean was making there about the fact that this was read out in the House of Commons with a prepared script. I mean, I think that was highly deliberate and calculated from a legal point of view, because if a minister says something in the House of Commons, it gives that statement certain legal weight, which makes it more difficult for the courts to challenge. But I remember 
when this story broke on Sunday night, I think I called you, Sean, just to try and make head or, head or tail mm-hmm. of this. But I, I texted a few contacts in, in Dublin, in the government and here in Brussels. And I think the government's initial reaction was, well, this is probably a bit of saber rattling just ahead of the next round of negotiations. Let's just wait and see and hold our horses, not necessarily fall into a trap. And I just got a, a two word response from a, a diplomat in Brussels saying, not good. But then once it came out in the House of Commons, I mean, there was total disbelief here at the brazenness of it. And also the fact that they were overturning, you know, effectively three years of really grueling work that kind of dragged the European Union into a crisis that it didn't ask for and into a historical cul-de-sac of the Irish border and Ireland that they didn't really know that much about. Think of the the, the the hours and days of meetings and crises that have been poured in to try and resolve the Irish border issue and Brexit. And then finally forging an agreement that was reached last year uh, and then everybody thinking we could move on. And it, it just seemed here from this vantage point that at a stroke, the UK was just sweeping everything that was involved there just off the table in a matter of 48 hours and also at at a key moment in the future relationship negotiations. So, of course, you had lots of theories flying around. Was this London simply wielding this blunt weapon to provoke the EU into ending the trade negotiations because because they were going nowhere? Was it London hedging its bets on what obligations it would have if there was no deal on the Irish Sea with the the withdrawal agreement because, of course, it's important to say the withdrawal treaty still applies whether there's a deal or not in the trade talks or whether it was something to do with the fact that the joint committee, which was set up by the withdrawal agreement, if it couldn't reach a consensus on what goods would be at risk of, of crossing the Irish border and therefore would attract tariffs under this protocol, if there's no agreement there between both sides in the joint committee, then the default is that all goods will be regarded regarded as at risk and right. therefore att- attracting a tariff. So why, why, people why, have been... Why would that have been pessimistically preempted? I mean, the relations on the Joint Committee between Vice President of the Commission, Shevkovich, and the Minister for the Cabinet Office, Michael Gove, had been regarded as reasonably good, hadn't they? So why, why would there be an assumption that the work of the Joint Committee was going to break down and leave an option of tariffs on all goods? Well, this is the thing, and this is another thing which baffles and, and also angers people involved here. I mean, I've been speaking to one person who's very closely involved in, in the joint committee, working on how the protocol would be implemented. And of course, at, at the outset, you know, there, there was a lot of controversy over how the UK was responding once the withdrawal agreement was concluded last October. People like Boris Johnson wasted no time in, in denying the implications of the protocol. He said there would be no checks and controls. Anybody who got customs declarations in the post should throw them in the bin. Even the, the, the new decade, new approach paper, which launched, uh, relaunched the Northern Ireland Assembly, had a paragraph which said the Joint Committee was there to allow the UK government to negotiate aspects of the protocol. And the EU was really taken aback by this because they're saying, no, the Joint Committee is there to implement what's already been negotiated. And it's it's there to try and figure out ways to do things sensitively. And, you know, after all that bad blood over whether there'd be a UK, an EU office in Belfast or not, things did get down to business. The UK published its command paper at the end of May 
spelling out how they were going to implement the protocol. Things started moving. There was a lot more engagement at technical level. There were meetings between the Treasury and the European Commission over the, the new VAT system that Northern Ireland would have to operate. And, you know, while the Commission was still worried that they mightn't get everything done on time by the end of the year, there was a sense that things were, were, were actually getting a lot better. Right. The key areas that the UK has highlighted, namely whether there would be exit summary declarations on goods going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain, the state aid issue, the tariffs issue for goods that were at risk. I mean, the work was ongoing. Suddenly, the the UK puts a gun to their head and saying, no matter what we've agreed here, we reserve the right to overturn it. Sean, just to go back for a moment about the surprise and indeed the animosity towards this announcement, it came kind of from surprising sources. There was antipathy towards this admission that they were going to breach international law from within the Conservative Party and not just people who would have been dismissed as crypto remainers. There were Brexit voices there during the week who were really horrified about this idea that Britain would breach international law unapologetically. What was more surprising possibly was the absence of Labour criticism of this. But just in terms of the Conservative voices, there were hardline Brexiteers who were happy with the opportunity. This was an opportunity to go full scale and attack the withdrawal agreement. But there were others who had a more nuanced position who are pro-Brexit but anti this move by the government. Yes, it's really fascinating to observe the reactions that there have been to this bill. And there's a couple of sources of opposition to this within the Tory party itself, as you point out, but also within the civil service. And yes, Labour is the dog that isn't barking. They see what's been presented as a trap that um, Boris Johnson is trying to lure them into to try and paint them as, guess what, Remainers, people who are opposed to Brexit. So they're trying to say nothing and hope that um, the Tories drowned in a a cesspool of their own creation. We'll see how that tactic plays out, but it's going to become increasingly difficult for them over the next few days because this bill is going through uh, the Parliament next week, Monday in in second reading, and then committee stage after that, Tuesday, Wednesday. They will be immediately called into action on this. There's no real real hiding place here. The Tory reaction, yes, initially you've had people like Ian Duncan Smith saying that this Northern Ireland protocol was dreadful and with all kinds of unintended consequences, people have suddenly started pulling out clips from him from six months ago saying we don't need to have any more than a, a day or two's debate in the Parliament on this bill because we've had a three and a half year long committee on what's in this Brexit withdrawal agreement Anyway, we know everything about it. There's nothing more to be said, nothing more to be scrutinised. Let's just put it to the vote. Oh, dear, a bit embarrassing, that one. Then you had people like Bernard Jenkins of the uh, European Research Group coming out initially saying this was a great idea. Get on with it. We should be disciplining these laws that intrude into British sovereignty. But then the next day seemed to be backing off because the uh, international damage to the British reputation was starting to come through at that stage. And that is something, of course, if you're a sovereignist, if you believe in Britain being great in the world or great again in the world, you are trading on a British reputation. And suddenly you're seeing that this landmine of the government's own creation 
is blown up and damaging that reputation. So they are starting to get a bit worried about it. Then you've got backbenchers, you've got the kind of Knights of the Shire who are looking, again, horrified at this, that a government would break the law. People like Sir Bob Neill, a barrister himself, the look of shock on his face when Brandon Lewis said, we're going to break the law. I mean, you know, you just don't do this sort of thing. The first place, though, where there was outright opposition to this was in the House of Lords, where you got Michael Howard, former leader of the Conservative Party, absolutely thunderous denunciation of what was going on there, uh, joined uh, in a two-pronged attack by Lord Lamont, Norman Lamont, former right. Chancellor of the Exchequer. This is Brexit royalty uh, you're talking about radio. here. Absolute Brexit loyalty. These people have been hardcore for, for you know, decades on this issue. Going back to the days of, of Lady Thatcher herself, these guys are, are serious heavyweights in the Conservative Party. So what they say on it really carries influence within the party. And within that, that kind of, I suppose, respectable middle ground, if you like, within the party, who would say, yes, we'll do the Brexit thing, but oh my goodness, we can't be doing it at any reputational cost. And then, of course, you had Lord Falconer, Charlie Falconer, former AG for the uh, Labour Party, ripping into them, talking about how dictators everywhere would now start to use what he calls the Lewis Principle to say we're just deviating from international law for limited and specific Well, purposes, indeed, particularly like at a time. Oppressing this group of people somewhere. And, and yeah, and if you have people like Dominic Raab during the week pointing the finger at Iran and saying they should be obeying international law. China's another one in the frame. They're saying, come on, you should be obeying international law, sticking up to your agreements. And here's uh, his cabinet colleague going into the House of Commons live on television and saying, oh, no, we're, we're not going to stick by international law. So that kind of reputational damage is definitely playing badly within the party, but also within the civil service, because, again, not only are government ministers supposed to act within the law. Uh, and that's why there was a lot of questions about ministerial directions on this and what kind of advice was given uh, by the law officers because they're trying to drag people like the Attorney General, Suella Braverman, another former leader of the European Research Group and a very hardcore Brexiter, into the frame on this one. But also you've had this civil service, not quite revolt, but certainly they're making, or certain bits of the civil service are letting it be known that they're very unhappy about Including a high-profile resignation. Uh, Exactly. And again, another Financial Times scoop during the week, Sir Jonathan Jones, the head, the Treasury Solicitor and Permanent Secretary of the government's legal department, i.e. the government's top lawyer in the civil service, Secretary General effectively rank within uh, the civil service setup. He resigned because he was just unhappy about this situation and uh, couldn't stand over it effectively. The only real course of option that he has to uh, make his protest register is to resign. Again, this is very, very embarrassing for them. But also, uh, amazingly, they've left him work out his notice period. So on Thursday, he sent a, a circular around to the staff, the 1,500 lawyers that work for the British government, and saying staff will wish to note that the cabinet secretary has determined that notwithstanding the breach of international law in executing this course of action agreed collectively by ministers and to be put to parliament, ministers and civil servants are operating in accordance with their obligations under the ministerial and the civil service code. In other words, like any good lawyer, he's put out the paper trail there and he's effectively placed the neck of the very newest cabinet secretary into the noose there because he is saying, this new cabinet secretary has approved this course of action. He said it's legal for you to work this way. I'm just letting you know that he said it. I'm not saying it. There you go. Good luck to you. Right. Lawyers want to have cover. I mean, you can talk about QC and BL and all that, but CYA 
are the most important three letters as far as lawyers are concerned. Uh, and that this kind of stuff, it sounds boring, it sounds anodyne, but it's explosive. You couple this paper trail that's being laid there with Brandon Lewis's reading of a script where he said, yeah, we're going to break international law and using a very precise form of words when doing that. And some people are saying these are guys who are laying down paper trails to try and protect themselves for a tribunal of inquiry that's going to come up sometime down the road right, so, if okay. this, this thing turns into a really big car crash. Oh, okay, well, that, that, the, the tribunal of inquiry may be further down the road, but, Tony, there's a deadline three weeks down the road to go back from the chaos and ructions in the House of Commons and the House of Lords to the Sturm und Drang in the European institutions. They've A three-week deadline has been issued to the UK to withdraw this controversial clause, or else what? Yeah, so the European Commission circulated legal advice on Thursday morning to capitals, so clearly they had to get their lawyers in a room and go through the fine detail of the internal market bill, especially those clauses 42, 43 and 45, I think it was. And they've they've made it clear that this is a breach, a clear breach of the withdrawal agreement. It's a breach of Article 5 of the withdrawal agreement, which is the good faith clause. If the government pressed ahead and adopted this legislation and then what's more put it into effect, that too would be a breach of the withdrawal agreement. Now, the treaty gives the European Court of Justice the competence to take action for four years after the transition period ends. So the legal action that the EU would take would be down the channel of the European Court of Justice, the normal procedures. So Sorry, just explain that one again. The, 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 once the transition period is over, the UK is not immediately free from the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. It still has jurisdiction on issues to do with the withdrawal agreement for up to four years after the transition yeah, period four, ends. So four, really? years, right, okay. yeah, four years after transition, if, if a case is taken through arbitration, which is set up by the withdrawal agreement, that's the dispute settlement mechanism. If a case is taken through there and it can go on then to the European Court of Justice, if it deals with you know an aspect of European law right. or indeed a complaint that is germane to the withdrawal agreement, the ECJ has a remit there to hear the case and to hand down a judgment. The question is how quickly would that happen and what legal remedies would, would that amount to? Clearly, litigation would take some time. It, it wouldn't be up and running before the end of the transition. But of course, they, they could take action right away, even before the UK adopts this legislation in the House of Commons, because they would see it as a breach of Article 5, the good faith provision. So if it goes all the way down the road to Luxembourg and the European Court of Justice, we could be looking at the, the court ordering the UK to remove the legislation. Failing that, there, there would be fines. If the UK disregard the fines, then you're getting into trade remedies, trade measures by the EU. I mean, it, none of it is pleasant, let's face it. it, it is There is no good outcome here legally. But I think initially the EU felt it was important not to, again, fall into the trap of pulling the plug on the free trade negotiations and trying, in a sense, to decouple the, the legal line of, of action they can take and keeping the trade negotiations on the road. I mean, ultimately, if they threw in the towel on the trade negotiations, which frankly aren't getting anywhere anyway. Well, I was just um, going to say, keeping them on the road like that memorable truck the Beverly Hillbillies used to drive, it rumbles along, seemingly getting nowhere. <laughs>
that that's a that's a first for this podcast mm-hmm. beverly hillbillies um <laughs> but uh, yeah it's, it's it's an apt uh it's an apt metaphor sure you don't know what the beverly you know, hillbillies I, are sean do you i i'm sorry i i lived in multi-channel land back in the the ancient times of the last century. Oh no, it, it was a series from America. It was a black and white series where a bunch of hillbillies struck oil on their land and they moved to Beverly Hills. It was one of those class distinction comedy writ large in America. But anyway, sorry, Tony, the, the, the trade talks and, 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 and where they are, they're not going anywhere. Michelle Barney no, back not, in Brussels not, yeah, today. So, so the Beverly Hillbillies truck is trundling along, as you say. And But if if the EU, if the EU decided that look, we can't trust these people at all. Let's let's just end this charade of, of a free trade negotiation. The clock is ticking. We've only uh, six weeks left to the deadline. They're still left with the problem of, of Northern Ireland and that the Irish border and how everything works. And, you know, the, in one sense, as, as one official put it to me, you know, you have to have at least one responsible adult in the room who will say, OK, you've taken this course of action we are threatening legal action if you don't change course but in the meantime we will follow the mandate that we've been given and we will keep negotiating until the the time runs out and but the logic of the course of action that was taken by the uk in this internal market bill was we negotiated the other deal in a hurry and then there were unforeseen consequences so it's entirely fair that we try and dismantle it and at the same time they're conducting a trade trying to conduct a trade negotiation and saying they absolutely won't seek any further extension. They're trying to conduct a trade negotiation that could well have unforeseen consequences if it's concluded an ambitious trade agreement within six weeks, which is precisely why the European Union haven't been entirely keen to do it this way. Yeah, well, well I mean, they, 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 the UK have been in charge of the clock for large parts of this process, let us not forget. They were the ones who initiated Article 50 in the first place. Nobody made them set the clock running on that with its two-year deadline and then they were the ones who had to look for extensions then they were the ones who decided they weren't going to look for an extension of the current set of trade talks uh, which as you say now is telescoped really really narrowly down into a few weeks of negotiating time that is left although you know i suspect they can uh, get a lot of these technical issues done the more time the officials are talking the better idea they have of each other's positions and they'll be drafting stuff as they go along so that when the big push comes they will be able to exchange text fairly rapidly and you know it's not like you're dealing with strictly speaking foreigners the british are very familiar having worked the eu system for nearly half a century they know the eu side inside out and vice versa so they can i think come through the technical side of it fairly quickly. The problem is the politics here. And until the politics, the big political decisions get resolved, then it's really difficult to see them having that sudden push to close a treaty, which is, you know, that's how treaties get closed. There is a sudden push. There is a last minute shove. We saw it last year. We've seen it in previous treaty negotiations involving the EU or indeed others. It's always the last gap that has to be closed. And it's usually a political question that has to be settled. But the technicalities of it can follow on fairly quickly, which is why this whole notion that was put out by Downing Street spinners that last year's deal was concluded quickly under extraordinary circumstances and pressure of time was treated with the scorn and ridicule it deserved, not least by the British media, who normally take the side of their own country in international negotiations. But even they thought that was stretching credulity far too far. Yeah, I mean, just like, I suppose we should get into trying to divine the motivation of, of what the UK is, is doing here. But just on that point of the treaty being rushed and unforeseen consequences and what Boris Johnson called extreme or irrational 
interpretations of the the protocol. I think the key could be found in in clause 43 of the Internal Market Bill, which is the state aid clause. This is one of those depth charges that seem to have caught quite a few people unawares. Of course, under the protocol, Northern Ireland is going to be operating and trading into the single market, and therefore it's subject to EU state aid rules. But what may not have been clear to a lot of people, but we certainly raised it here in the podcast a few times, was that that application of state aid law in Northern Ireland has a potential reach across to the rest of the UK. In what and way? If the UK, if the UK government decides to subsidise a big supermarket chain that has subsidiaries in Northern Ireland, then it gets caught by EU state aid law. Now, as we've discussed ad nauseum in the podcast, the big sticking point for the UK in these trade negotiations is state aid. It is a solemn badge of pure sovereignty in their view, and they don't want to have anything to do with the EU's regulatory orbit or state aid rulebook. Whereas the EU is saying we need to have a rule book that both sides can sign up to. Otherwise, mm. one side can rig the system by subsidizing um, sectors, especially the technology sector, as Sean will probably illustrate uh, or amplify on uh, shortly to give the UK a competitive advantage. But just to, to finish this point on state aid, the idea that this was somehow hidden and put in there at the last minute is completely false because the state aid part of the protocol was in there at the very beginning in February of 2018. Article 9 of the protocol there had the state aid application for Northern Ireland and the way it was drafted uh, meant that there was a reach across to the UK in certain circumstances and that stayed in there even though during her time Theresa May and her team tried vigorously to get it removed uh, even during the whole UK-wide customs episode, the whole checkers agreement episode, this was fought over very hard by the the UK. The thing is, it got no coverage at the time. Everybody was fixated with borders and hedges and drones. And, and it stayed in Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. And it stayed in Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement. When he came to the table, he tried to push the border to the land, the customs border to the land border effectively saying there's no need for Northern Ireland to be applying the EU state aid rules because it's going to be entirely within our ambit. The EU said no, it got pushed to the Irish Sea, and then the state aid element came back into play. Right. And Boris Johnson and David Frost and the UK team did nothing to try and stop it. And it was in there, and they had state aid lawyers and experts over from London, and they knew exactly what was going on. So the idea that this was sprung on the UK at the last minute is entirely false. And Sean, yeah, this, they, this, they, this, is, this is another area where there was antipathy within the Conservative Party. I think it was last week's podcast you were mentioning, the Conservative Party traditionally no fans of state aid. In fact, Mrs. Thatcher was all into removing the state from large parts of the economy. William Hague writing a column in The Telegraph over the last week advising Boris Johnson that really the issue of state aid was not a ditch worth dying in, that this was not something that the UK should break down the trade talks on and that some compromise could be achieved here. Yeah, and I mean, I, I remember my, my previous job listening uh, to uh, top-level civil servants from the British Treasury speaking glowingly of the idea of a state aid regime and how they liked the EU rules because it meant they could say, terribly sorry, Minister, that plan you have to bung your mate in your constituency, a big wad of 
taxpayers' money can't do because the uh, EU rules say no. But if they leave the EU, the worry then, and I'm talking back to maybe three years ago, was that without any kind of a state aid regime to control ministers, ministers would run amok with the taxpayers' money and they'd end up propping up and subsidising all kinds of dying and failing industries. Now, the British government are saying, no, 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 that's not our plan at all. But we would like to be able to invest a bit more in some emerging technologies, as as Tony was mentioning. Uh, And that's an area where some people, and by which I mean Dominic Cummings, sees the UK as being able to gain a big competitive advantage. They think that they can move quicker than the EU, and that might be true, and that if they uh, are able to put a bit of taxpayers' money behind certain projects, it might help develop some technological areas in the UK and give them a commanding lead in certain technological races. An early example of that has been putting, I think, half a billion behind a satellite competitor to GPS for navigation. I mean, the EU is, of course, very far down the road of bringing its own Galileo satellite system for navigation into play in the market. This British company is quite small and the stake that the government has taken in it would be fairly insignificant compared to the big infrastructure that's already in place through Galileo and through GPS and a a Russian system, GLONASS, that's there as well. But it gives a little indication of perhaps the kind of direction they'd like to travel in. But the, the subsidy regime has become controversial within the UK as well, not necessarily because of the idea of them spending money on projects, but how the money would be spent, because this bill centralises the control. It takes it away, or makes sure, rather, that the devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland don't effectively have powers to subsidise industries or technologies in their regions. It's going to be a UK-specific measure, and they would take the central powers for that. Part of the problem, though, in the negotiations is that they're giving themselves the power to legislate for a central subsidy control regime in the UK, but they don't actually have one yet. Uh, The business secretary said during the week they're in the middle of consultations and they won't have one ready until late next year. Now, as we know, Barnier had been saying we want to see a UK subsidy control regime before we'd sign up and, and open up the single market to them. That was seen as a concession by the EU on its initial stance of trying to get them, as we said last week, to march lockstep with the EU subsidy control system. So, you know, again, there's playing around with the subsidy controls, the state aid regimes in Britain and in the EU. And the fact that there is no state aid regime or won't be one after Christmas. That is a difficulty, I think, in these talks. I'm not sure how insurmountable a difficulty it is, but it is certainly a difficulty, I think, Tony. Right. I mean, I think one of the, the sort of an interesting theory here is that, you know, David Frost and his team have made state aid, you know, the key metric of pure sovereignty. But suddenly it looks hard to sustain that argument if you've already surrendered a role for the European state aid regime in Great Britain, not just Northern Ireland, because of this reach across effect. Uh, It somewhat weakens your argument if you've already given in to having some form of state aid, EU state aid rules imposed on your territory if there's this effect of the Northern Ireland protocol. Another theory which again, looks seductive in some ways, but when you break it down is, is very difficult, is that you know, this is a, a pitch to break open the state aid issue and in so doing, break open the protocol and then hope to get some kind of desperate last minute grand bargain 
where the EU would grudgingly say, okay, we'll open up the protocol, we'll take the state aid thing out. If you agree and turn to what we're proposing as a holistic state aid solution for both sides, and, you know, the UK might think that they can pull a few other things out of the protocol while they're at it, such as exit summary declarations or, you know, loosening the the demand for for tariffs and so on. But it just seems that, that since trust goes to the very heart of the EU's negotiating position, you know, that this episode has really raised the bar of, of trust. And it's, it's extremely hard to envisage now how the EU would suddenly do a handbrake turn in the last weeks of the negotiations to acquiesce to UK demands on things like state aid and other areas where the UK is saying, trust us, our food safety regime is the best in the world, our data protection is the best in the world, we don't need a treaty to nail all this down legally, just trust us. Uh, it's hard to see how that's going to work. Right. Well, well it's the, the other area where question it's... that you raised earlier, Tony, about motivation of why they're doing it. And, and uh, you know, you can look at it in two ways. One is that, uh, as we discussed, the two negotiating teams, Frost Barnier, have basically reached the limits of their mandates. In fact, that was evident quite early on in the summer, that they were running up against the limits of, of uh, the mandates and that some kind of political breakthrough was going to be required. And you could interpret this move this week as a move by the British to try and break that logjam on the negotiating team side by creating a political ruckus or crisis to try and get some attention focused on the issue and try and get the, the politicians to the table and give them an excuse to get to the table and try and deal with this, as you say, as part of a, a, a grand bargain. But of course, by putting Northern Ireland into the mix, here, it is a really high stakes gamble. And we've seen the kind of reactions that have been coming from the United States at, at the highest levels of politics over there. Uh, it has destabilized the British position internationally. The other theory on this is the good old Boris Johnson doctrine of the dead cat, which is when things are going badly in an argument and things are going against you, or you want to distract attention from something else that you want to do, you throw a dead cat on the table and everybody says, oh, my God, there's a dead cat on the table and start talking about the dead cat rather than talking about what's actually going on. So here are we talking about the dead cat, the rule of law being breached, et cetera, et cetera. What we're not talking about, perhaps, are other things going on behind the scenes. And the, the fact that there wasn't a breakdown of the talks on the trade front, the fact that we've had some you know, reasonably emollient sounding briefings coming from the two trade negotiating teams and that, you know, they plan to carry on, that might be where sort of the action is, is actually taking place somewhere behind the right. scenes. And we've got this big distraction, this dead cat on the table mm. here, uh, which we've duly all fallen for. Or or, or, or or maybe it's it's not that well thought through at all. Maybe this is just another example of somebody doing something that's expedient in the moment to get themselves out of a tight pinch. You agree to one thing at a given time and think about the consequences later on. I mean, we, we, we've seen several instances of that since, I mean, uh, one, one, since the Johnson administration has come in. One theory, I mean, just to, to, to put an end to our theorizing here, but one, one suggestion I heard from a UK source was that the, the most offensive elements uh, to the EU and Ireland, at least, uh, of this internal market bill were initially going to be uh, added as amendments by friendly uh, Tory MPs. And then the government would say, well, Parliament is sovereign. MPs have put these amendments down, delimiting and disapplying elements of the protocol. So we, we, we're going to support that. But it 
gives you a bit of distance between the government and the actual text. But in the end, it seems that they just went for the nuclear nuclear option and and put the those paragraphs straight in there, not as amendments, but on the face of the bill. But the you amendments know, may, may actually be the way out of this one, Tony, because, in fact, amendments are, are starting to go in already yeah. that would disapply the lines of or give the parliament the right to disapply the disapplication of international law. In other words, to, to skewer these controversial clauses. And again, the government would have, having said parliament is sovereign on this matter, would have little option but to say, oh dear, we wanted to have this, but the parliament has said we can't have it. So there you go, out they go, as the EU had requested effectively, and uh, everybody lives happily ever after and gets on with it. But again, we, we should know within two weeks whether that's going to be the case or not. But yeah, they're coming under a lot of pressure here. Today, Friday, a letter has gone to the top law officers and Boris Johnson from the House of Lords constitutional committee and it's headed rule of law and the uk internal market bill and it's really hammering into them saying whether the breach is specific and limited or not is irrelevant any breach of international law threatens to undermine confidence in future treaty commitments made by the uk government and increases the likelihood that governments of other countries will breach international law obligations so they've sent an absolute rocket and again it's more of this paper trail stuff because it's gone to the top law officials like the Lord Chancellor and the Attorney General. So it, it's putting them in the noose, in the frame and causing them a lot of difficulties as well. So that particular problem inside British politics is going to fester away and come to a head over the next two weeks. Right. One of the other bits of collateral damage that we should mention before we're, we, we wrap up, and there is only about two minutes left of memory on this recording machine, I think we've hit an all-time record here today, is the undermining of trust and the relationship between the British government and the Irish government. The Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, probably said it in the most robust terms. He began the week saying he thought the British move was unwise. Now he said it's irresponsible. He says it's undermining he said it was a dangerous approach by Britain. And he also went on to say, and there was quite a bit of resentment about this, that the lack of consultation, the lack of a heads up. He said, this week, we got nothing, no calls, no emails, nothing. Instead, we read a headline in the Financial Times. And that's not good for a variety of reasons, not least the relationship the two governments have to have over the issue of Northern Ireland. Yeah, but the thing is, Colm, you have to follow the logic of this through. Now, if, if the protocol unravels, and the UK just simply lose interest in it and start to disapply more bits. I mean, there's the agriculture bill is coming forward as well. And people here in Brussels are saying, well, what if that has clauses disapplying the building of border uh, control posts in, in Larne and Belfast? And if that comes to pass, that the protocol unravels, uh, then it lands on Ireland's desk uh, because... The protocol is not just about preserving the peace process. It's about preserving the integrity of the single market. And if goods are starting to flow from Great Britain, a third country, into Northern Ireland unchecked, then where are they going to be checked? We're back to square one and the Irish land border. And Ireland being responsible for putting the checks in place because Britain is simply not cooperating. We're back for a, yeah. a nightmare scenario for the Irish government, because at least even if you went back to the troubles, you had checkpoints on both sides of the border with joint security patrols on both sides of the border. But now you would have one side effectively ducking their responsibility in advance and leaving Ireland to do a hell of a lot of catching up. Yeah, yeah or the, it's, it's not even a, a, trying to control the 500 kilometre border. The other more simpler way, but again, it's a nightmare scenario for the Irish government, is to use the new customs facilities that they've built at Dublin and Rosslare ports to control Irish exports to the rest of the 
EU single market. And that, again, flips around this argument that the British have been using about unfettered access to the UK internal market. Well, what about unfettered access for Ireland to the rest of the EU single market? That becomes problematic and rises up all kinds of difficulties for the Irish government. They're really in a very, very uncomfortable place right now. And that's why they are reacting the way they are reacting. Right. OK, well, we better look ahead to the coming week because starting on, well, I mean, we'll probably have the usual round of interviews on Sunday and there'll be probably a bit of white heat and noise about that. But starting Monday, Sean, action in the UK Parliament with this bill coming into yeah. the House and all of those amendments you're talking about. Yeah, it's the all important second stage. The general principles of the bill, will the House accept it or not? Uh, I'd say it's going to be fairly uh, hot and heavy in there. Again, we don't know what the Labour Party is going to do, um, but the interesting one is going to be what happens, what comes from the Tory backbenches. Then it's supposed to go into committee stage uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday and also committee uh, on the following week. But there's also regular committees of the House. And the most important and interesting one is on Wednesday, the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. They want to know what's going on and their star witness then will be uh, Brandon Lewis. Right, and Boris Johnson is also up, isn't he, in front of one of the committees in Brexit is one of the things he's answering questions He's on got well. committee questions on Wednesday as well, and he's also got Prime Minister's questions. So right. uh, I think it's going to be fast and furious in the Palace <laughs> right. of Westminster during the week, and then there's the House of Lords going on as well. And then right. who knows who's going to be resigning? Watch that space as well, Indeed. particularly Indeed. law officers. Tony, the Commission, uh, European Commission meets on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, Ursula von der Leyen is giving the State of the European Union address. Now, when she made her acceptance speech to the European Parliament in Strasbourg, Brexit got somewhat of a passing mention. You'd imagine it would feature far more strongly this time around, given the events of the past week. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is uh, this is something that is yet another massive headache for Ursula von der Leyen, you know, having just put the Phil Hogan controversy to bed um, and got a new Irish commissioner uh, designate, uh, designated or appointed or confirmed or whatever, uh, she's she's having to deal with um, the this sudden bombshell from London. So I'd say that will uh, feature in her uh, State of the Union speech uh, next Wednesday. But I think the, the the European Commission wants to try and stay quiet as, as much as possible. They've issued their threat and their uh, legal warnings and uh, asked the UK to come up with uh, a response within three weeks. And I think they don't see much value in um, in, in keeping the pot stirring uh, in the meantime. So I think the, the EU will go uh, relatively quiet. There's going to be another meeting of the negotiators next week, but it's going to be an informal meeting, not a, not a proper round. Uh, and then the EU leaders are going to be meeting uh it's a physical meeting in Brussels the week after, um, and by all accounts, they wanted to keep Brexit off the agenda there. So they may hope. still do that, uh, but uh, certainly people will be asking about it and talking about it on the way in. All right, um, okay. So that's that's where we'll be at then. Okay, that's our lot in a bumper episode. Um, for me, Colm O'Wongoyne, Deputy Foreign Editor in Kildare. From me, Sean Whelan in London. And for me, Tony Connolly in Brussels. Thanks for listening.